And if you'll remain standing for our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. He who kills a bull as if he, he, as if, as if he slays a man, he who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck, he who offers grain offering, as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense, as if he blesses an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways, and their souls delight in their abominations, so will I choose their delusions, and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I... Shall I who caused delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for, for joy with her, all you who mourn for her. That you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom. That you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed. On her sides you shall be carried and be dandled on her knees. As of one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse 
shall be consumed together, says the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pool and Lud, who draw the bow and Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar, afar off, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. And I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look among upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This ends the reading of the word. You may be seated. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you are the great God of heaven and earth, and we look forward to learning more of you this morning. I pray that you would bless the the reading and the preaching of your word. I pray that we would be encouraged and renewed, that you would call many to repentance this morning, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah 66 is both the concluding chapter of Isaiah as well as its climactic declaration of the coming judgment for the wicked and the blessings for God's children in the new heaven and the new earth. If Isaiah 66 were summed up in a single sentence, I thought that commentator Paul Kim captured the essence well. He says, Yahweh comforts the humble but judges the wicked. And the interesting thing about Isaiah 66 is that it contains both poetry and prose. And the chapter, though, even with the, the mix of, of type of literary uh, device, it's generally structured as a, a chiasm with a theme of Yahweh's judgment against his enemies at the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 through 6, and then also at the end of the chapter in verses 15 through 24. And the, throne, and, and the theme of Yahweh's blessings to his people is centered in the middle. Isaiah 66 also serves as somewhat of an echo and an expansion of Isaiah 65. The phrases of Isaiah 65, verse 12, are actually repeated nearly verbatim in Isaiah 66, verses four, verse 4, with a primary change reflected only in the use of the pronoun from the second person, you, to the third person, they. In Isaiah 65, verse 12, it says, Because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. 
but you did the evil in my eyes, and that in which I do not delight, you chose. And you heard already this morning where uh, it's changed to they in, in Isaiah 66. Also in Isaiah 66, the actions of the wicked in their corrupt worship that were described in Isaiah 65 are expanded in Isaiah 66 in, in a, several verses. The promise of a remnant from Isaiah 65 is repeated in Isaiah 66 too, as well as the nourishment and delight of the faithful contrasted to the treatment of the wicked in Isaiah 65 and also in Isaiah 66 verses 10 through 14. And then ultimately, the picture of the new heavens and the new earth that are described in Isaiah 65 verses 17 through 25 are concluded in Isaiah 66, 18 through 24. We saw in, in the opening verse that um, the Lord is speaking about heaven. And on one hand, it is fitting that the concluding chapter, um, he's speaking of heaven, but he's also referencing the temple in, in Jerusalem. And on one hand, it is interesting that he should, um, that Isaiah should conclude uh, this, this chapter and this, this letter of Isaiah with a focus on the temple upon the holy hill of Jerusalem, because the temple and Zion and Jerusalem have been central elements throughout the whole book of Isaiah. Yet in this passage, when he references Jerusalem and the temple, he kind of flips the notion on its head with a bit of deconstruction. Though the temple and the sacrifices were an important aspect of the protocol that that the Lord had established for worship, you saw in Isaiah 66 that it's not just rote motion and legalism that he desires. It is man's heart that Yahweh is after. And so what appears to be a statement of disregard for the temple in Jerusalem is simply the Lord stressing that the heart of worship is more important than the location and the mechanics of worship. This morning, we'll be studying just the first two verses of Isaiah 66, reflecting on Yahweh's description of himself. And then this afternoon, we will be Finishing with the second half of verse 2, with Yahweh's requirements for those that worship him. These two verses place the Lord enthroned in heaven as the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. No man-made structure is required to or is in fact capable of upholding the glory of the God of the universe. The Lord is demonstrated as the owner of heaven and earth because he is its creator. Likewise, as creator and owner of creation, he alone dictates what he requires of mankind, namely a humble spirit and the fear of his word. And so we see first that Yahweh is enthroned in heaven. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? People contemplating the existence of God and his habitation often picture him in a somewhat spatially mystical heaven. In Isaiah 63, verse 15, Isaiah refers to heaven as the lofty dwelling place of God's holiness and glory. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul likewise describes being caught up to the third heaven. Uh, Steve mentioned that in uh, the Sunday school lesson this morning. And biblical scholars parse the heavens as first, the, the sky that is above the earth, second, what in modern parlance is called outer space. And then third, what Paul described as the throne room of heaven, that sacred place where the full majesty of the Lord is on full display. 
However, to constrain God to even that spatial location is an impossibility. Jeremiah wrote, Do I not fill up heaven and earth, declares Yahweh? John Calvin states it this way, By assigning heaven for his habitation, he means that the majesty of God fills all things and is everywhere diffused, and that he is so far from being shut up in the temple that he is not shut up or confined with any place whatever. The scripture often teaches that God is in heaven, not that he is shut up in it, but in order that we may raise our minds above the world and may not entertain any low or carnal or earthly conceptions of him. For the mere sight of heaven ought to carry us higher and transport us into admiration. In simplicity, children declare as they recite their first catechism, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men, and God is everywhere. The Lord pronounces in Isaiah 66, 1, the heavens are my throne. The great expanse of heaven is insignificant to the greatness of Yahweh. The heavens are merely situated as a place from which God has determined to figuratively sit enthroned in power and majesty and rule his creation. Mankind's massive expanse of earth is merely a footstool in the dominion of Adonai Elohim, of the sovereign God. Though David desired to build a temple for the Lord, as he describes a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of God, Solomon acknowledged in his dedication of the temple in Jerusalem the limitations of such an endeavor. Solomon built the earthly temple in obedience to God to serve as the place where God would place his name and for his people to come and worship him according to his parameters. However, Solomon rightfully asserted in 1 Kings 8.27 at the dedication of the temple, For indeed, will God dwell on earth? Behold, the heavens and the heaven of the heavens could not contain you. Moreover, this house that I have built. If you would keep your place in Isaiah 66, but turn with me briefly to Acts 7. Acts 7 is the account written by Luke of Stephen's sermon. Stephen's sermon and then his his martyrdom. In verse 49 through 50 of Acts 7, Stephen quotes Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, and he says, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? If you are paying attention to the minute details of Stephen's quote of Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2, and Luke as the author of Acts, you may have noticed a slight difference in wording. And if you missed it, it's okay. I'm going to point it out to you. Like I said, it's a very, very slight and minute detail. So slight, in fact, that it is quite easy to overlook. The quote in the New Testament asks, what? As in, what kind of? What house will you build for me? What is the place of my rest? Versus what we saw in Isaiah 66, where the question is, where? Despite that minor difference, both translations remain consistent with the intent that nothing man-made from where or of what is sufficient to house the king of the universe. 
Furthermore, Luke tells us in Acts 7.58 that the young man Saul was present during this speech. He was the one collecting the garments as they were about to stone Stephen. Though a scholar of Scripture in his own right, one might wonder if these words of Stephen were echoing in the ears of the Apostle Paul as he professed that same declaration to the Athenians of the Areopagus when he said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. When Isaiah was brought to the throne room of heaven in Isaiah 6, he described that the whole temple could barely contain merely the edges of Adonai's kingly robe. He wrote, I saw the Lord sitting upon a high and exalted throne and the edge of his robe filling the temple. Heaven represented the place of ultimate power and authority. And it is here where the one true God has established his throne. The place of heaven as authority was so significant that Jesus warned against swearing by heaven or earth because they are God's places of authority, not a place of insignificance for men to toss around at their whim. In Matthew 5, verses 33 through 34, Jesus was teaching, Again, you have heard that it was said of old, said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. The psalmist David likewise confirms in Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established his thrones in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. It is from his throne room in heaven where we saw maybe a month ago from Psalm 2 where Adonai laughs at human rulers who believe that they could thwart his sovereignty. However, even as Yahweh's position in heaven is a threat to his enemies, it is a source of comfort for his people. Listen to Nehemiah as he, in his address in Nehemiah 1 verses 4 through 6. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes opened to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. His prayer is consistent with the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 6, who taught us, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven is the sovereign of heaven and earth, enthroned in heaven and able to see and respond to the pleas of his people. There is no one and nothing above our Father Yahweh whereby we may plead for for, for mercy or forgiveness. In this realization, believers of every age should be spurred to echo the prayer of David. He prayed, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Let's turn back to Isaiah 66. 
verse 2. Isaiah 66, 2. And we see Yahweh as creator of heaven and earth. He declares, For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, is sovereign God, Adonai, Elohim, of heaven and earth, because he is the creator of heaven and earth. As verse 1 had declared that no suitable place on earth could serve as the habitation of the Lord, the implication of verse 2 is that since he created everything that exists, how could a creature establish an adequate sanctuary? Where the Hebrew Old Testament states that all things came to be or came into existence because God created them, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, renders this passage with a statement that since God created everything, they are his possession. Can man, therefore, take something that already belongs to God and somehow fashion it into something more suitable for God's glory? It is the creator's prerogative to make heaven his throne and earth his footstool because he made them for his own glory. The Lord, sovereign, Yahweh Adonai, is the supreme authority. In 2 Kings 19.15, King Hezekiah acknowledges the implication that creation dictates ownership and sovereignty. He prayed, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all heaven and earth, of all the kingdoms of earth. You have made heaven and earth. Hezekiah acknowledged Yahweh's rightful place of authority because he is the creator of heaven and earth, and it is his prerogative to turn the affairs of men. As the Proverbs asserts, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. In the same manner, the psalmist pleads for the blessing of the Lord as creator and owner. He writes, May you be blessed of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. We saw that in our responsive reading this morning. Because the Lord is the creator of heaven and earth, and has given mankind dominion on earth to glorify their creator, is appropriate for believers to ask for his earthly and his spiritually bless, spiritual blessings. It is also important for us to realize that we do not need to be anxious about kings, rulers, dictators, and presidents of earth. Certainly, believers around the world should be as influential in politics and the rule of men as they are afforded, and can do so to be a moral compass, to be compassionate, and a witness to biblical worldview. We are fortunate in the United States with our ability to vote and participate in governance and politics. Other nations are not so fortunate. But God has declared in Scripture that every leader is in place to fulfill his plan. It is always for our good. Sometimes it is also to bring about God's judgment and punishment to men and nations. Jeremiah was writing to the people in captivity, in, in Babylonian captivity, and he wrote, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. 
for in its peace you will have peace. We may not be captives in a foreign land, but as believers, we are aliens and strangers in this world. God desires for us to be productive members of society and to pray for peace. But we must be spiritually minded. This world as we know it is not our home. The author of Hebrews stated of the patriarchs, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, we were assured of them embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Furthermore, other passages, like the proclamations of Daniel, remind us that God controls the rise and fall of nations and kings. Daniel wrote, actually it was in his prayer, his prayer of praise, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar declared, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? The apostle John also wrote in Revelation 1, describing Jesus Christ as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We also see that Yeshua Yahweh, Jesus the Lord, is creator. Scripture demonstrates that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, was the creator of the world around us. And I may be the only one to do this. And it's okay. I can accept being weird. But sometimes I like to refer to Jesus as Yeshua Yahweh because I think we are too prone to forget that Jesus, Yeshua of the New Testament, is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. The apostle John first wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul also affirmed in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And he also wrote in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we see Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity, as the creator of heaven and earth. Yeshua Yahweh is also the sustainer of creation. The scriptures likewise declare that Jesus as creator is also the sustainer of all creation. The following sentence of Paul's statement from Colossians 1.16 completes his thought. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Colossians 1, verses 17. 
Likewise, the author of Hebrews professes, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Since Yahweh is the Lord God of heaven and earth, as the creator and sustainer of all things, visible and invisible, it is his entitlement to dictate how his creation worship him. The Lord's complaint is against those that forsake his worship in Isaiah 65, and those who claim to worship him yet do so in the wrong manner in Isaiah 66, verses 3 through 4. Rather, his affection is upon those who worship him in humility, repentance, and fear. And we will continue with that section of this text this afternoon. The Lord demonstrated through Isaiah that he alone is Adonai Elohim, the sovereign Lord God, enthroned in heaven above all creation. That he is enthroned in heaven with the earth as his footstool demonstrates that he sits in full supremacy over heaven and earth. Heaven and earth serve to encompass all of creation, visible and invisible. Likewise, heaven serves as merely a symbolic resting place for the throne room of the Lord, as even all of heaven and earth cannot close him in. Similarly, the Lord saw fit to place his name in glory upon the temple on his holy hill of Jerusalem, but no man-made structure could do justice for the glory of the Lord. Anything that man could make with his hands was already created and owned by Yahweh and merely granted to man for temporary dominion. Additionally, since the whole of the heavens cannot contain the glory of God, we have to ask, how can this simple physical structure? Scripture demonstrates throughout that as the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord is its rightful owner. Ownership implies the right to dictate use and disposal. Scripture does not merely state that the Lord created the world and everything in it. Scripture illustrates the controlling and governing hand of God over all creation. There is nothing that happens or fails to happen outside of the express purpose of our Creator. Not only is the Lord sovereignly con- controlling and governing His creation, but Scripture also demonstrates that Jesus Christ is the creator of heaven and earth, and he sustains it with the power of his word. Because the Lord is the creator and owner of the created order, that means that mankind, created as the image bearer of God, is responsible for proper worship to his creator. Believer, the encouragement of the message this morning is to rest in your sovereign father and your sovereign savior. He sits enthroned in heaven, and everything is within his power and control. He sustains all of his creation, and he holds you in the palm of his hand. Jesus taught his disciples in John 10, verses 27 through 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Nothing will befall you that God has not intended for your good. Rest in him. In your triumph and success, acknowledge the blessings of your covenant-keeping and loving God poured out in your life. 
In your trouble and despair, find comfort that you are not alone, unseen, nor unloved. Furthermore, be encouraged that even as presidents rise and fall, and as seasons change, seasons of time, and also the seasons of our life, God's ruling hand controls all these things. As Christianity becomes a vulgar, vulgar term in our society, do everything that you can to influence the world around you with a biblical worldview. But of utmost importance, we are called to be faithful to our Lord and to his word. He is intimately involved in the affairs of men. And if it is the time for us to see a decline in the blessings of, our, of God in this country because of our rampant sin, then we should pray in peace. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. There is a warning here, though, that needs to be addressed. If you have not come to God in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, then your life is in jeopardy. The reader of Isaiah is prompted, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Salvation is found in no one else than in Jesus Christ. I plead with you, turn to him today. As the sovereign creator and owner of all creation, he owns you too. And he tells us how we are to submit to him in obedience. Don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. And we close in prayer today as our father David prayed. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. May it be so forevermore. And we pray as well. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come. In the name of Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior, we pray amen and amen.